Hello. Hello. Welcome to Salem Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Jeffrey Lilly. And I am Sarah Black. And today we have an interview with the owner, curator, creator of the Salem Witchboard Museum, John Kozik. Why, hello. Thank you so much for having me today. It's genuinely our pleasure. Yes, not only are we getting a chance to sit down and chat with you, but we are sitting down inside said Salem Witchboard Museum. So, a phenomenal space you have curated here. Thank you. I didn't want to say it at the time, but we are in the area closest to the haunted items in the museum. I didn't know there were haunted <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you feel anything, but a lot of people in this area do feel something. Oh. <laughs> How you doing, Sarah? I, know, I, I did. I mean, I, I, it's an interview, right? So I've got the nerves, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it could be the ghosts. You never know. Could, might could I ask, be that, that board on the, on the wall there. I was going to say, might I ask what the most haunted item? Is there such a thing uh, if, behind me? If I was to tell you what people believe might be the most haunted item here, it would probably be right behind Jeff. And it's the Stranger Things board on the wall over there. <sighs> And I love it because it not only is very inconspicuous that that is going to be a haunted item because it's so recent uh, from 2017, but in fact, that board, uh, the previous owners did have a bad experience with it, so much so that they uh, spent 15 to $20 to mail the board away. They did not put a return address on the package. They only put a note in with the board and the note we have on display as well. It says, if you find this board, forward it to the Talking Board Historical Society because trust me, you don't want it. Oh, my well, that's God. that's very sweet. So, a lot of people. What's funny about that board? Believe it or not, a lot of people that do come in the museum get to that spot, and that's where they tell me they feel something. They've walked past the old stuff in the museum, but they get to that board and they'll feel something. Then they'll ask about it. They won't know that uh, it's been donated. Um, and also, pretty funny is uh, people with real cameras with film. Uh, not every time, but four times in the last two years when people have taken a picture of that board and then gone home and developed the film, it looks like somebody's shaking the board. It could be. It's Maybe it's connected to the... Uh, Upside down. There you go. Yeah, you go. a portal. We found the portal <laughs> it's in, in the Salem. Sa- uh, right? Although I would have thought that would have been on the common with the big board. Yes, you would think so. Yeah. That was that board was... Uh, the, we're talking about Ouijazilla, yes, the world's yes. largest Ouija board that was unveiled in Salem about three years ago. And what's funny about that is uh, at the time, all the people in that neighborhood loved the board. But as soon as the pictures went online, that's when you really heard the negative things about they it. They hated it because oh, yeah. it's drawing attention Cthulhu to their... Cthulhu came out and, you know... Every, I'm sorry, that was in October of 2019. And so, of course... COVID got blamed mm-hmm. on Ouijazilla. I mean, it makes sense. Yep. Makes sense. We've been saying that if there is a system of tunnels underneath the Salem Common. Which there isn't. If there was, though. Which there is. <laughs> then that would have been the moment where yep. it all collapsed in. <laughs> yeah. We he, tried. I mean. I, good luck. It was fun. It was, it was yeah. really cool. So how many were in the Witchboard Museum? So I, I don't even know where to start with how, like. How many boards oh. are in here? Right now in this room, there's definitely, give or take, 100. 100. But it changes. I, I do rotate things through. This is not the entire collection. This is only a third of my collection. And I also have access to my, my friend Merch, 
who is the world historian, and he has been very generous and donated anything from his collection as well. So um, the stuff that you see in the museum, it's not necessarily the rare, it, it's all rare, but I mean, it's not the rarest things in the world. It's just the things that tell the most stories, the coolest stories. Now, as an expert, should we be referring to them as spirit boards, talking boards, Ouija boards? I, to me, they're all synonymous, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like I just a... got my first, I must say, I just got my first one. Jeffrey actually oh, nice. got it for me as a, uh, a present. That's a good gift. Yeah. yeah it's uh, it was from Broomfield. Uh, I think it was uh, like 20 bucks and it was the, the, um, mystifying Oracle, nice. uh, from Salem, uh, board and everything. Yeah. Yeah, Plan chat included. What, what should I call it? Well, to me, I still refer to this as a Ouija museum, even though technically, like you said, Ouija is a brand much like Kleenex to tissues. So technically only the boards that say Ouija on them would be Ouija boards. The generic term would be a witch board, spirit board, talking board, but I am in no way. They're all Ouija boards to me. <laughs> it's so much easier to you know talk to people about, collecting or buying these boards, just calling them Ouija boards. Because they just know, right? Exactly. Yeah. Most people, like what you see in the museum, you know, some of the brands that you see in here, no one would even know that these ever existed. You know, these boards right. are, are very rare. And, um, you know, Ouija board is the generic. <laughs> what, did, what did you just see? I'm sorry. I just looked up and I saw the circle board. It just, it, Took my breath away yeah. for a moment there. It looks like it has the uh, the um, zodiac signs around the edge. Actually, That's, I believe that says it's a magnetic message mat. That is phenomenal. Mantic message oh, mat. Mantic. Mantic, Sorry. which is another word for psychic, basically. Okay. And what's funny about that board, I'll tell the story because it's a pretty interesting story. It tells a few things. Not only how obsessed by these boards that I am, but also that one... Uh, belonged to Geraldine Saunders, and she was the first female cruise ship director. She wrote a book in the 70s called The Love Boats. It oh. became the TV show, The Love Boat. And she had a very fascinating life, besides being married to an astrologist to the stars and writing his weekly column for years after their, their divorce. She was engaged to a guy named John Decker, who was a B-movie actor. He was in like Hercules versus the Cyclops. And I know that name. All these really bad B-movies. Well, or, or, or great B-movies. They're great to me, but... Uh, <laughs> She found him hanging dead in the shower, bound and gagged, all these hypodermic needles in his arms and all this derogatory stuff written in red lipstick all over his body. And the police ruled it a suicide. So she had a very fascinating life. She passed away just about three years ago. And I bought, I met the person that bought all of her occult and astrology books. And he found 13 of those boards. And within 48 hours, I was in Burbank, California purchasing 12 of the 13 boards. Oh my God. So they were never what? mass produced. They were sold mail order and on the love boat. What, what happened to the, the 13th board? I left it behind as good karma. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I knew somebody else that was interested in it. And even though I didn't think they would be able to pull the trigger and uh, secure the deal, I didn't want to buy all 13 and be accused of uh, screwing up their deal. Clearing so the I left, shelf. Yep. I left one behind for that person and I would bet money that that deal is still not secured. <laughs> well, that's uh, wow. There you go. Full of places, full of stories. Um, I guess I didn't even think each one of these boards has so many, like not just one, but possibly multiple stories attached to it. Yep. 
I mean, when you look at this many boards, you could think, okay, there's a chance that maybe somebody got it for Christmas one year and they weren't interested in kind of threw it over their shoulder. But when you look, uh, we're pretty close to a wall of Ouija boards that are from the 1940s. So World War II, you have to think those boards were used. You know, people really were affected by death and people were really looking for a lot of closure, a lot of comfort. And so you have to think that most of these boards were used, especially that time frame. Well, that's the, the, the same as the, the spiritualist movement as well. Oh, yeah. Um, which is sort of about, I guess, what? Can you just give us a history lesson? Absolutely. Like, like, like a quick, a qu- <laughs> like, like 10 minutes of the history of the talking board. Just I- tap your wrist when you think I've gone too long, <laughs> and I will gladly okay. stop. But uh, the thing when people come to the museum, I really like to let people know this, there's actually no inventor of the board. You know, these came about the spiritualist movement, specifically uh, the Fox sisters who were two sisters in upstate New York in the mid 1800s. And they made a claim that they were communicating with spirits who were knocking responses back to them. Well, their news traveled. Other people started making the same claim. Uh, Modern spiritualism in America really starts because of these two sisters. And originally people are just asking yes and no questions, waiting for knocks. Eventually they're trying to count the knocks to figure out what the alphabet that they're on. So those conversations, you can imagine, didn't go so quick, and they speed it up with just introducing an alphabet board where they point to letters and numbers and wait for knocks. Eventually, someone takes a a device called an automatic writing planchette, and it looks very similar to what you see with a talking board now, except for it has a pencil at the front and two wheels at the back. And the way that device works is a medium channels the spirit through themselves. They write or draw onto a piece of paper, whatever comes through. Well, because the spiritualist movement was happening in Europe before it came here to America, they were using that automatic uh, writing planchette as early as 1851. And so that crossed paths with an alphabet board. That's how we get a talking board. So two separate devices eventually crossing paths. So when when is that? Mid-1800s to about 1890. 1890 is when uh, a guy named Charles Kennard, he has the idea to produce a board. Uh, He doesn't have a factory, so he goes to a local coffin maker, and they produce the first board, which he calls a witch board. Do do you have one? I do. Yeah, one of five (laughs) known. Uh, It's in the first case. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 pretty cool. It's awesome. It's it's a really nice thick piece of wood, beveled edges, and it's beautiful. Um, That was actually gifted from my friend Merch, who uh, could not own two very rare items. You know he. Wouldn't feel good about himself. That's having, a that's a very good friend. Is a, he is the, <laughs> the best friend. I can tell most of the stories I tell in the museum all center around his research, his work, and his generosity for sure. Um, but yeah, so 1890 is the first mass-produced board. It's originally sold as a witch board until uh, a few months later when a woman named Helen Peters asked the board what it wanted to be called. The board spelt back Ouija. She asked, "What does it mean?" And the board spelt back, "Good luck." So the board actually named itself, and then Ouija became the first mass-manufactured talking board. Like we mentioned earlier, it's a brand name, much like Kleenex to tissues, Ouija is the talking boards. She, unfortunately, Helen, uh, gets written out of history. You know, Helen Helen Peters is a very interesting person besides asking the board what it wanted to be called. She's the sister-in-law to the person that patented the board, Elijah Bond, who, if people look up uh, Ouija headstone, they'd Mm -hmm. they'd see what Elijah Bond's headstone looks like in Baltimore. Well, she went to the patent office with him, clerk after clerk. No one wanted to sign off on the patent until finally the chief patent clerk said, I don't know you. You don't know me. 
if you can use this board and tell me my name, I'll give you the patent. Well, Helen, she was a strong medium. She used the board, told the guy's name. That's how we get the patent for the Ouija board. But sadly, shortly after that, she gets written out of history. And we only uncovered her story nine years ago. As, you know, unfortunately is the case with a lot of females, especially in business back then. I'm, I gotta say, I'm honestly surprised. I don't know why I thought this, but I, for some reason I thought that, I assumed that this dated back further. I mean, I just assumed that maybe from ancient cultures, they had, you know, used different languages. I don't know. But to learn that it was part of this spiritualist movement is quite fascinating. Yeah. uh, Well, there's lots of reasons why people might think that. Of course, like I mentioned, the spiritualist movement started in Europe before it came here. So pendulum, tarot, seances, all those things were going on beforehand. When you go back thousands of years, you know, people will always mention about, you know, the talking board being used in China or things like that. But if we define the talking board as basically an alphabet board with a separate pointing device, planchette, uh-huh. that's mid 1800s. Now, of course, people have been doing divination. Of course. Forever. But uh, a talking board for how we define it is definitely mid 1800s. Until we find one in a cave one day. Right? <laughs> cave paintings with, with, with horses and, and Ouija boards. Um, so what happens next? Part of the reason why Helen is written out of history is because uh, a person named William Fold, he's very synonymous with the Ouija board. Uh, him and his family manufactured it for over 70 years. Well, he started putting inventor on the box. And everyone can ah. take a wild guess as to who's credited with the... Uh, being the inventor, the William Fold. Exactly. So, uh, but really, you know, these start during the civil war, they start as spirit communication. And unlike today, when you mention the Ouija board to someone, you'll probably hear something negative about it. That's not how most people viewed these boards. Most people, you know, being affected by death in the war, uh, these boards were actually bringing a lot of comfort and closure. And what I think when people come to the museum, especially what they're most surprised about is they've heard a lot of things about the Ouija board. You know, they've seen a lot of movies. Which, yeah, like opening portals and that kind of thing. Exactly. And it's all horror movies. But here you see how most people viewed the board. You know, there's a dark side from the beginning, of course, but most people didn't view it that way. Most people really uh, use these boards uh, because they were affected by death. So... As I said, Jeffrey got me my first board and it is currently on display right in front of my TV. And my roommate had a couple friends over and they actually asked her to put it away. They felt so uncomfortable to have it even in the room with them. And for us, you know, it was just exciting to have something that was produced by the Parker brothers. But I have to ask, you know, do you have people that come in here and either have to leave or just you know, refuse to even partake because it is, you know, the Ouija board. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the museum sits behind a store called Remember Salem, which is basically a Harry Potter store. And so it's kind of a speakeasy. You got to kind of know where you're going. So a lot of people that don't know this is here, they come to the Harry Potter store. They're able to look through an archway behind the clerk where they can look into the museum and they can see a giant wall of Ouija boards. I can tell you pretty much all day long, I hear people you know, as soon as they see those Ouija boards, they will leave the store. So a lot of Wait, people leave, like leave to go out. Yep. And then, you know, you do get people, which I'm very thankful for that 
Because most people, when they picture a Ouija board, they kind of just picture the Parker Brothers board. You know, that's right. the most iconic image. But so then people only think of that and they still, oh, a museum, what, what's that all about? So they take that chance. You know, they come back here to want to learn something more about what they think is only one image. Mm-hmm. And some of those people, of course, uh, come back by themselves because the person they're traveling with won't come into the room. They'll come back clutching the arm of the person they're with. <laughs> They think there's a jump scare. And so you know, people shiver and shake and not go near the walls. You'll see people walking with their head tilted back. They feel so much pressure on their head or their chest. They can't put their head down. So all those do things, all those things do happen here for sure. Have you had any paranormal experiences related to any of the boards? Not necessarily here, but anywhere? Nope. And I got to tell you, for the, you know, a lot of people come to the museum. They only come here to find me, to tell me their Ouija board story. To tell me a story that people didn't believe them or they got laughed at or they want validation. So I can tell you, I hear hundreds and hundreds of stories and nothing gets me more jealous than hearing a story. (laughs) And no, and you're not, you're not part of the club. If anything's going to happen, it should be happening to this so guy. Like, you are like the king of Ouija boards. I am the prince. Merch the is prince. the king. Oh, okay. you know. But <laughs> I, uh, I'm obsessed by this board, and I get very jealous when I do hear, you know, because I, I wish something did happen. Right. Um, like I mentioned, a lot of people put a lot of power into the board, and they can't come into the room. I'm, I'm sure, you know, on your tours, you might talk about Parker Brothers making the Ouija board here in Salem. And I've actually met former employees. They've told me that some employees wouldn't work the day the Ouija board was made. So, you know, again, the people put a lot of power into the board. And, um, you know, for me, uh, I wish that something would happen for me. Well, I hope one day it does. Yeah, Hopefully we can, we can manifest that that experience for you. We were talking, we, neither of us has had a substantial experience. You know, we both give night tours and we are hoping that something will happen but unfortunately, nothing's jumped out of the bushes yet. Yeah. Well, the way I the way I look at it now, I used to look at it very differently, more as a poor me, nothing happens to <laughs> me. Until last year when I went out to Michigan Paracon, which is the largest paranormal convention in the U.S., it's kind of like the Comic-Con of the paranormal. And if you watch the Travel Channel, all those shows are all, everyone from those shows are there. Have you ever been? No, yeah, no? Okay. we were chatting before yeah. before okay. the show. It's in Michigan, my home state. And I had no idea. How long has it been? Is it usually there? Yeah, it's been going on for. I think they're going on their eleventh year now. Oh, that's fabulous! Yeah. Oh, I would go back home for that. <laughs> Sarah's like, oh, I'm going to check flights for that one. <laughs> it, it's it's pretty awesome. I got to say, you know, not only is it the the world's largest, uh, but the people that are there, it's almost like family because they go every year. And so it's a lot of the same people, uh, but they mix it up. They have a lot of great panels and a lot of great discussions. Um, When I was there, John Zaffis was speaking and John Zaffis, he's related to Ed and Lorraine Warren, where you get the Annabelle doll and the conjuring Uh films. And he has a TV show called the haunted collector. And he takes items uh, much like the stranger things board behind you, Jeff, where uh, you might consider it evil, negative or haunted. And he takes those kind of items and he puts them into his collection. And someone asked him, well, how are you able to do that? And then nothing happens to you. And his answer was, I don't feed it negativity. I only show it love. And so for me, it made me view the way I view these boards a little bit differently because I don't view them as evil or negative. And, you know, I only show them love. Even the board like the Stranger Things board where clearly the previous owner didn't want it. I love talking about that board. I love when people ask questions about it. So 
you know, well, maybe I mean, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, especially from people from before who, uh, gave these boards a, a level of respect because they were communicating with people and then sort of if we filter in the modern age and people view it as more horror things so they're feeding it that angst or sure. fear so they're getting back these negative situations and then you just top that out and you're like i love all this stuff and the boards are like oh cool we're, we're we'll just chill here and yeah yeah happy little home i can i, I can buy that yeah I, I like i said a lot of people when they think about the ouija board there's a lot of different beliefs a lot of different power given to the board. And um, recently someone came in the museum and to tell me their story, uh, they were crying, bawling their eyes out. And they had told me that when they were a kid, they had used the Ouija board and it told them something bad was going to happen to them. And an hour later, their house burnt down and they had to rescue their pets from their, from the house. And the next day they went through the rubble, which everything was lost, except they <gasps> found the Ouija board unscathed of course well of course that's like that's a scarring moment in someone's life absolutely and you know for me i waited i gave them a tour talked to them for a while before i eventually said sounds like you were pretty lucky to have that ouija board around Uh, to them they looked at it what caused it and i looked at it as to what saved their life oh my god and then once we were laughing a little bit a while later i said uh you might want to consider building a house out of a Ouija board because that really sounds like the safest place to be again. So, you know, people view the same thing differently. Wow. That's pretty great. Or, I mean, I'm glad they're okay. Yeah, but of course. The yeah. story is great. Yeah. yeah. Do you happen to have a favorite of all your collection? Well, they're all like my children. And of so course. picking a favorite is, is hard because <laughs> we, uh, we won't tell. It's de- okay. Depends on the right. day. So there's, there's, I like different boards for different reasons. Uh, you know, because of the adventure I got hunting it down and who I was with when I got it. Uh, my favorite board, it's a metal board called the Electric Mystifying Oracle. Electrifying? Electric Mystifying Oracle. Okay. Yeah, it's a metal board. It was made, made in the mid-30s. And um, it, it basically, uh, a planchette that came with it was metal. It had a battery inside of it and like ball bearing casters. Whoa. And there's like little bumps on the board. So when the planchette would pass over them, it basically would shoot a spark. <laughs> and That's so cool. It was way ahead of its time. It, it was, you know, a wooden board at the time sold for $1.50 and the metal one sold for almost $5. Uh, the company put all their capital into producing it. It was a flop, even though people loved it and they sent their salespeople out to demonstrate it. Just during 1933, during the Depression, no one mm-hmm. wanted to spend $5 for a board. So a couple of years later, World War II came along. They scrapped them for the war effort. And today we only know of seven boards and four planchettes that still exist. And you have? I have just the board. I have okay. The planchette is my grail. That is okay. really the thing that I've hunted for. I know where all four are, <laughs> but I have not been able to convince anyone not only to sell it to me, but even to lend it to the museum. <sighs> wow. Yeah, so are there other... I mean, you mentioned a uh, gentleman earlier, but are there, is this co- not common, but is there a world of Ouija board collectors? There is a world, but it's very niche, as you can imagine. You know, uh, when you're looking at this collection, I would say, you know, maybe 10 people in the world of around this, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you, the, the pool gets much smaller when you start talking about money, and how much people will spend. I can tell you that, you know, people that would spend more than a thousand dollars on a Ouija board, 
you're probably looking at like definitely less than 20 people in the world, you know, yeah, yeah. and certainly on a regular basis, much smaller, <laughs> you know, it's, hey, it's any other type of collection. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people... getting two of you in a room is probably so fun. <laughs> but you know, some people collect cars, bikes, you know, all toys, all sorts of different stuff. So this is just another, it's just, you know, that this is not as widely available. Exactly. It's not collecting, you know, Michael Jordan shoes or right, you right. Know, matchbox cars or something like that. Like this, these boards are all extremely rare and um, you know, you have to do everything. You have to be obsessed by the Ouija board to get them. Right. You can't because yeah. when the, the metal one came up for sale, that was being sold as a full collection in Florida. I had to come up with the money for a full collection within two hours I had rented a car and was driving to, I picked up merch in Boston and we drove straight to Florida to go buy that collection. And as we were driving there, other collectors were trying, they were kind of figuring out that they could do the same thing and they were trying to make a deal. And I didn't know until we drove whatever, 17 hours that if the seller would even sell it to me, if he'd rethink it and sell it to somebody (laughs) else. So it was very stressful. And then of course you have that, I had a collection that I didn't want. I only wanted one board from it. You can't flood the market. This is very niche and you might meet collectors that only can afford to buy one, two boards a year. So, uh, very niche. So then, then you're just sort of like, like, like the diamond industry, just slowly (laughs) letting a board out in the market every, every so often. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is years before I had a museum now be no problem. Yeah. You just, I'm just going to put more on the wall. Exactly. And when they come, like I said, you come to the museum, a lot of people get inspired like, oh, these look pretty cool. I like the artwork. I like the history. And so then, you know, you do inspire people to eventually start at least buying one, if not starting a collection, you know? Mm-hmm. That's very cool. So you've been here for about three years mm-hmm. now. Is this the first time that they have been on display, curated in this uh, exhibit type of setting? Uh, my collection, uh, I did lend it out to the Satanic Temple about five years ago. And that was... It was supposed to be an exhibit for a month and uh, we were doing a lecture one night. Uh, and then at the end of the month, they asked if they could keep it up another month. And so I let it stay there another month. And then after that month, they said one more month. So it ended up staying up there for three months total. And really that's what gave me a little more confidence that there was, there's a market. There's, there's yeah. A there's a people interested. Yeah. So, so then that sort of begs the question, which I mean, I think we know the answer to, so hopefully uh, you can educate everyone listening. Why Salem? Well, Salem, uh, <laughs> it is the uh, it is the the mecca for people that love Halloween and spooky things. So that's right off the bat, right? Uh, it's an amazing city where you know, obviously being in New England, you get spooky vibes just from the the you know uh, being on the water here mm-hmm. and the history that's in the the town. But of course. Uh, history to the Ouija board, which is that Parker brothers produced it uh, from 1966 to 91. They actually had a factory on bridge street. And uh, so there's, there's the history to the Ouija was actually made here. That direct connection. Yeah. yeah. It's which like is bringing it home. And it says it on, on, on the board. It says Salem mass. Um, h- how did Parker brothers come to produce the Ouija board? They bought it from William Fold's family in 1966. So it went through a series of owners, William Fold, the longest, because like I said, he got involved in 1892 and uh, died in the, you know, but his family kept, kept the brand. 
But in 1966, the family had come to a point, uh, the Fold family had come to a point where um, all the men had either passed away or were too old to run the company. And they went to the granddaughter of William Fold. And she was a homemaker. She's like, I don't want to do this. So uh, they, the family decided to sell it to Parker Brothers in 1966. In 1967, the first full year of production, Parker Brothers it outsold Monopoly. It sold a what? million boards. Oh my god! Monopoly's like that was there, there that saved Salem. And yet some people would argue complete yep. difference too. I mean, going yeah. from Monopoly, like a board game, to this talking board, this activity, this parlor game. Well, they they play it pretty middle of the road. You know, Parker Brothers are advertising things like that. They don't tell you that you're speaking to a ghost. They kind of just play it as like. It's weird. It's wonderful. You decide what's going on. I mean, the, the time frame is right. Late late sixties. We've got Adams Family monsters bewitched on TV. Um, you know, so that little revivalist movement. So now you got like a little spooky thing going on. I, I can see it. Yeah, some of the ads uh, are like you'll see them in fashion teen fashion magazines, and the girls will be using the Ouija board to predict fall fashions. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's, that's one of my favorite ads. I need uh, to, do you have any in? Yeah, the, I, I can show you. Yeah. Heck yes. I yeah. can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Matter of fact, it's one hanging way over there on the wall, but I'll, I'll show you a closer up one later. Yeah, please do. That's, that's pretty fantastic. But even doing that, you know, that's like the beginning of the Vietnam war. Uh, so you do have a little bit of a crossover, but they really don't play up the spirit communication. And this is a couple years before the movie, the exorcist, which most people would probably uh, claim is how the negative side of the board really gets well known. You know, prior to that, it's a very popular uh, during the wars and um, even for dating, you know, a lot of people never talk about that part of it, but Parker brothers, their ad will be a guy and a girl playing in a dark room. And it says, (laughs) we just weird. It's wonderful. And the last line of the ad says, you may even get a little turned on. So, (laughs) Sex in the Ouija board is a thing. It started by like the 1920s. And wait, like, what? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> You're going from like, you know, crazy sex in the 60s and 70s, which is fine, to like, oh, yeah, start in the 1920s. Well, we need, we need a little more there. Oh, sorry, oh sorry, 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 sorry. So <laughs> after World War I, you know, the war is over. Yeah. Less people are interested in the Ouija board. What? Will you do to sell this board? How are we going to market it? it? Sexy. Sex sells. What sells? S E X. Well, in 1920, the directions on the board, the only real instructions on the board say that it's best played between a man and woman. It's best played with the board on your lap. So now your knees are touching, you're in a dim lit room. And you're unchaperoned. <laughs> so, you know, you'll see pictures in the museum of being very romantic and intimate of a couple using the board. And, uh, but really, uh, there's a very famous picture by Norman Rockwell for the Saturday Evening Post. And you, in that picture, you see really where the guy's focus is. He doesn't care about the Ouija board. Is, is, he, is that the one I'm looking at now? He's looking at the lady. He's just staring yeah. directly at her chest, basically. Yeah. Well, over time, of course, people's views on sex change, their views on the Ouija board change. So when you get into the 1960s and 70s, uh, in the museum, there's a board called the Psychic Sex Board. And that was made in Watertown. And it's where you consult a spirit if you're going to have the lights on tonight. It, you know, oh, Jeffrey, that one's next to you. It is. <laughs> you like the one in front of it, though. <laughs> 
the weed ja. Oh, <laughs> shut up. Sorry. <laughs> and you're right. This is why I positioned myself here. To be fair, I knew what was going to go. On. So you know that that goes all the way up. And a lot of people that come to the museum, once I tell them this, I'll ask them where they got their Ouija board from, and they'll tell me they bought it at Spencer's. <laughs> and I'll say, right? Was it in the back room behind the beaded curtain? Yeah. Yeah. No way. What was it on the shelf next to? Oh. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So yeah, sex in the Ouija board, it's a thing and um, will always be a thing. That's, that's pretty great. <laughs> that, like the, of all the things, I, I don't know if I would have put that, I mean, maybe on the list somewhere, but, but like now I look around, I'm like, I'm sitting next to this one. I see the Rockwell picture. Like it's, it, I guess it is a little obvious. obvious yeah. I very yeah. much appreciate these ads that are surrounding us right now because it does help contextualize sure. as we've already mentioned the views on these boards has changed so much. Oh, yeah. What would you say is kind of the thing that sticks out the most to you that's not a board in this museum? Uh, definitely. Jeff just probably heard this story recently. But behind him, there is a teacup that is uh, in the case. And that teacup was actually used by a poet uh, named James Merrill. James Merrill was the son of the guy that started Merrill Lynch, and he was a, um, a writer and was looking for inspiration. He had writer's block. Well, he actually made his own talking board. He you know, wrote it out, put punctuation on it, and he used a teacup instead of a normal planchette. He used the handle as kind of the pointer. He wrote a giant book of poetry, and it won a Pulitzer Prize. And so that was a teacup that he actually used. That's the teacup. That it's not. I mean, not the teacup. It is a teacup that he used. Next to the teacup, there's a book about James Merrill because he had a very fascinating life, and um, you you see a teacup from that set that was used as well. That but, is so cool. Yeah, for me, uh, I, you can tell I love all these items, but that is the one item in the museum that I care the most about. I, I don't put a uh, a plaque next to it because I like to tell the story. You know. Um, my friend Merch, who I've mentioned quite a bit in here, he's my best friend. And him and his husband, Gary, were the first gay couple to be married here in Salem. Uh, really, uh, Merch worked very hard to make that legal. He would sit outside of lawmakers' offices and um, make lawmakers meet with him face-to-face. And he'd say, you know, you can vote against gay marriage. You just need to tell me to my face why I'm not equal to you. So <laughs> a, a lot of this stuff, awesome. you know, I don't believe it's very well recorded. And... Um, Anyways, uh, Merch came to town last year. He lives out in Denver now. And uh, we went to go visit a guy named Peter. Uh, Peter was good friends with James Merrill. James Merrill has since passed, but all of his belongings went to, I believe, Winchester University, his slacks and all of his clothes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But last year, Merch came to town and we met this guy, Peter. We went into Boston to a brownstone that James had bought for Peter. And we sat at a table where Peter told us James had used the Ouija board at. Merch and I were beside ourselves. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. So can, cool. can I have the table? Like, <laughs> exactly. So we were already getting kind of giddy, but Peter had started to tell us these these stories about him and James being openly gay in the fifties and sixties, and just not only horrible things of what it was like to live in Boston and be openly gay, but amazing fun stories of eclectic friends, dancers, and poets and writers. And um, he told me that in the nineteen seventies they had hearings in Chicago where homosexuality was considered a mental disorder and Peter and his friends actually, they disrupted the hearings, broke it up, got the hearings to stop. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there with two people who've changed quite a few people's lives, uh, history that I don't believe is well recorded. And that unfortunately Peter being an older person probably Probably won't 
No, sadly. Mm-hmm. And um, I just felt very fortunate at that time. And so when we went to leave, Peter handed Merch and myself both one of the teacups and said, oh, James, use these. And uh, it just meant the world to me, you know, because it was a, a <laughs> wonderful day of, of being with my friend, hearing stories I never would have had, had not been for the opportunity of the Ouija board, you right. know? Um, so, yeah. It's so much more than the board. Exactly. And yep. he, just, he just handed them, like, hey, thanks for being who you are. Yeah. That's and now you have that moment, that day all tied to yep. that cup. Yep. Wow. Yeah. That and, is incredible. And James Merrill, I mean, certainly there's lots of literature that's been written through correspondence with the Ouija board. James Merrill is probably one of the more prolific of those writers. Patience Worth or, or Pearl Karen, uh, Frank Baum and um, uh, Mark Twain have all written books from beyond the grave through the Ouija board. But certainly uh, James Merrill, most people would know who that is. So interesting. Everyone go and check that out if you're, if you're curious. Oh yeah. Okay. So, so that's a positive thing. Uh, and I, I don't mean like a negative thing, but what's like something in, in here or related to Ouija that, that you think has been detrimental or negative to the idea of the board of the talking board? Like, is there something that you're like, it's people bring up, people talk about that's you just drives you off the wall. Perhaps a misconception. Are you looking yeah, for that? I, like anything. A, anything. To be honest, I'll be totally 100% honest. I don't find anything like that. I love it. I love. <laughs> this is good. You don't understand. I love that not everybody loves the, the Ouija board. Okay. I really do. I'll be honest with you. If everyone liked these boards, they're not so cool. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I like the negativity that's associated with them. I think it's great. I love what people believe about the board from the very top as to how they work. Are they, you know, a ghost or a spirit? Is it your subconscious? And then go right down the line and get into all the different beliefs that people have about how they work and how they work better than other times. Like I mentioned uh, before we started about people believing they shouldn't use it in a graveyard. Mm-hmm. That's fine. You know, if you don't believe, if you believe you shouldn't use it in a graveyard, don't. But why? Why do you believe that? You know, it, is it going to work more? Is it going to work better for you there? You think it is? Okay. But again, all the superstitions that come with it, right. I love all of it. And I love that people won't come into the room. I, you know, before the the before we hopped on here, you called it Ouija stitions. We well, that's a, a term coined by my friend Gene Orlando, who owns a website called uh, the Museum of Talking Boards. Uh, Ouija stitions, which goes with everything from don't use the board in the graveyard, <laughs> don't ask it when you're going to die, uh, don't use it alone. Um, all those kind of things uh, all come all Ouija stitions. There's dozens and dozens of them. That's that's great. I, I think we're like I want to kind of go through like a list of those and go and do some of them. Okay, just like oh, yeah. <laughs> be like, no, we're gonna go do all the things that it says not to do. Well, but, my that's what my so Rick uh, Rick Shrek who made uh, Weejazilla, the world's largest Ouija yeah. board that we brought to Salem a couple of years ago. He he got interest in the Ouija board because he was like, wait, that's how you open a portal. Ouija board. He had so no. That's how he. That's why he made the world's largest. I mean, he got into it. He started buying every Ouija board he could find and just nailing it to his walls, uh, being like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do it. So wow. I, he made a, a shirt for, about Ouija stitions. And most people would say these are things you should never do. And to him, it's the checklist of all the things That's- you should do. <laughs> yeah. Goals. So we should ask him if he's had any. Uh, ha- do you know if he's had any crazy? I don't believe so. Okay. I think he's, he's, but he is hoping. He, Stranger he's Things season five. Like in like two days. 
Oh no, that's part no, I'm saying four, this is the plot for yeah. Stranger Things season five. It's, it's no longer wherever; it's now in Salem yeah. on on the common. Uh, yeah, Salem's quite the quite the place. The big uh, talking board on the common that could turn it into the upside down, and then I don't know all the tourists would be even more popular place to come. So, even though you've only been here for a few years now, I. I know just from what I've seen and heard, you are on some folks' lists, like at the top of the list, to come and visit when they come to which city. What's your favorite place in town? Is there anything in particular that you love? I you I love pretty much everywhere here in Salem. <laughs> from when my friends visit, I really like to take them to the Satanic Temple, and I like to take them to Count Orlock. So those are two of my favorite places. I think they're they're beautifully curated. Uh, amazing, uh, you know, exhibits and um, something that I love a lot. And I think my friends are going to like, but really even going to all the restaurants, I could, I have eaten my way around Salem. <laughs> I know every place to go. And really there's just, I mean, I, that's all I could do. Yeah. It never gets old. No, right? I, I have to, it's a tough decision for me when I'm here on the weekends. I'm like, do I go to brew box and get the uh, <laughs> biscuit and gravy or do I go get the uh, spicy chubby over at uh good night fatties? Uh-oh. Night talking oh Sarah's gosh. language. Yeah. Every Sunday. Every, I go oh, every, every Sunday, Sunday. That's what I do. Every Sunday they win Saturday is brew box. And of course we mentioned coffee time earlier where I have to get peanut butter and jelly donuts or peanut butter and fluff donuts. Jaho is open late, so there's yeah, so many nights yeah. that I go home, and then I'm like, "Well, I can just I can drive back up here, yeah. and go get a peanut butter and jelly hot chocolate." And I ooh. always, I always have the problem. People ask me, they're like, "Oh, where do you want to, or where would you recommend to eat?" And I was like, "Wherever you want." And I'm not <laughs> trying to sound like rude, sure. but I'm like, "Do you want the ocean view seafood? Yep. Do you want the great seafood? Do you want a great sandwich? Do you want grilled cheese? Do you want ice cream? Do you want to sit by the fire? Do you want a drag show? Like, what do you want?" Yeah, we, exactly. We, we got it all. We got it. Yep. And if you want a hidden gem, do you want a place that like it's not going to be crowded, even though it's the best place in Salem in October? You know, where, where, where is that? Well, I, mean, I send people to the the Thai place in the mall. Oh, which yeah. is funny because it is amazing food, and you don't ever really go into a wait there. No. And the, the service is amazing. Oh, I love going in there. She's so friendly, and um, it's one of my favorite places to go, especially when every every place else is so crazy. Always get a table there. And same thing with the uh, Indian restaurant on Washington Street. I love oh, Passage, passage yep. to India. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Actually, the first Indian food I ever had was here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was they, it they at Passage? At Passage. They set the bar oh, high. I was going to say, that's a, that's a good luck. Uh-huh. They did. So <laughs> my, my partner, Mandy, and I, uh, we love a place up in Salem, New Hampshire, um, called Kashmir Indian Restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we found out that the guy's uncle is the owner of Passage. So it's in the same family because that sets the bar pretty high for yeah. us. Same food. Yeah. It really yeah. It is. Yeah. 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 You're like, you're like, oh, we love this. We love this. I'm like, oh, it's the, oh, it's, uh, yeah. It's in the family. Yeah. I love that. So do, do you have like a favorite? I know you just listed like, like, like a dozen, but if you had, could go to one place in Salem to eat, yeah. Flying saucer. Okay. Nice. Because I <laughs> their pizza is amazing. I wouldn't know what I would have. It would probably going to be the uh, the vegetarian Nick Fury with like the mac and cheese on it, and but then like the pickle Rick, like the, everything there is amazing. But that unfortunately having all these options is also a bad thing because you you don't tempted all the time. Yeah. And uh, for me, I am definitely addicted to food, and so. 
I have to think like, well, no, I can't go to flying saucer every week. I no. can't, I want to, but I can't, it has to really be something like once a month, you know? Mm-hmm. So you've got folks coming in and out of here pretty consistently. And I'm sure like crazy during October, could you tell us a terrible tourist story? <laughs> Do you have any? I actually, I don't, you know, to be honest with you, because people have to go through the Harry Potter store, pay an admission. They're kind to of come vetted. Back here. Well, yeah, I think that they're already like, you know, I think a lot of people are very pleasantly surprised that they had thought of just like that Parker brothers image. And then we're like, Oh, Holy crap. There's all this other deeper history to it. Um, the only time that I ever thought I was going to have a bad uh, tour was uh, a clergy member. I don't know a priest or uh, exactly what he did, but he came in and uh, was he in? Yeah. He had the little the the collar. Yeah, yep, yeah. He had the collar and everything. And uh, we went through and the good thing about for me is like, I don't get into my beliefs. It doesn't matter what I believe about the Ouija board. The boards work based on what your beliefs are. And uh, I'm respectful of everyone's beliefs because I, I believe the boards work and I believe you can influence the board quite a bit. And so there's really no arguing with history. You know, when people come through and they might have a, 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 a preconceived notion of what they believe the Ouija board's about and I can show them things that like, okay, well, you believe that today. But that's not how people viewed it a hundred years ago. And I can just show them that I can talk about other people's beliefs, you know, perspective. Exactly. So this person, he was probably here for a good solid hour, which is pretty common when you get people that are very uh, interested in, in this subject. I had people here for three hours the other day. So, you know, people can really spend a long time in here, but he spent definitely over an hour. He listened. He never gave judgment. He never tried to argue or he just asked questions. And at the end of it, he shook my hand. He said, you know, thank you for giving me something to think about. And uh, wow, I was pretty amazed because I really thought of all the people, my own, that's my, that's on me, you know, right. I thought that would happen. Um, but no, it was quite the opposite. I was like on the edge of my seat. Right. Like, I'm, I'm like, what? To, like, he's he's going to knock grab over a, a board and <laughs> well, yeah. slap you across the face. Well, because you know, there's wow. that preacher in Salem who's known yeah. in October yeah. for getting up on his soapbox and, yep. you and know, yep. we're on the streets yeah. having to like, yeah. you know, we're just trying to tell history. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. That's all. That's all and, it is. And, and we're getting hit with like uh, volume control issues from the police. And there's this guy just screaming into his megaphone. Yep. We talked about that in an episode recently. Yeah. 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 So, the I mean, streets are crazy. I'm fortunate that, you know, I have not come across anyone being angry. Congratulations. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad because, you know, I do hear plenty of horror stories and yeah. we've all working in Salem. You can't help but hear, especially October, it gets very stressful here. You're trying to manage lots of people coming in here. And unfortunately, you don't always have the best uh people under the best circumstances, you know, maybe getting drunk or lost their patients from waiting in line or things like that. So they, they came here not expecting it, but uh, I'm very fortunate. I have not had to deal with any of that. <laughs> You're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it has something to do with the boards. They're keeping the the bad energy Ooh, of the yeah. tourists at bay. It's all the good energy you have put into them. And they yeah, they're, they're, they're protecting you from all the, all the tourists. We love you. So, We've been asking all of our guests on here if they have a favorite witch or wizard. And I know it's kind of hard to choose, but if you had to. Pick one. You mean like. Anything, whatever. Anything? Real 
imaginary folklore. Well, what's funny is me being in the back of a Harry Potter store. I actually really love Harry Potter. Okay. <laughs> and this space. That's convenient. It really is. I love it. They listen to the soundtrack all day oh, and I nice. like it. I'm like, you're like, oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. This space here before it was the Ouija museum, uh, the previous owner was using it as a space to have Harry Potter themed birthday parties. So you would come back here and all the candles would be hanging from the ceiling. There was like a potions room where you had different colored liquids all like kind of steaming and, you know, uh, fog coming out of them. That's so yeah, cool. Fake uh, fireplace and, and look like a castle. And so it was sad for me to kind of take some of those things out <laughs> because I'm like, oh, this doesn't go for a Ouija museum. <laughs> so I would probably say, of course, the original Dumbledore from the, the first films uh, is my favorite favorite just because uh, of just how kind hearted and uh, he was just such a great lovable character. Maybe if I think about it a little bit more, I could think of somebody else, but the top of my head, that's a good, that's my answer. I'll tell you what, we have gotten a lot of long beard wizards. Mm. Like that is just the common de- denominator here. Ben, the, the owner of, of Vamp Fangs, for those of you who've listened to the uh, Vamp Fangs interview, he said, uh, him as well, but it was a little more to do with beard envy oh. than, uh, <laughs> than I, I think character persona. That's funny. <laughs> but yeah, that okay. Yeah. So so we are both very much Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. Fans. Nice. Jeffrey went off on this very long tangent <laughs> in one of our recent episodes about Voldemort, and I, oh, I'm sorry, Tom Riddle. Yes, and how that is his favorite character. Yes. And uh, I won't get into it Please too don't much. Do it again. But I always appreciate the bad guy, or like what makes you bad. Sure. And then I think that can highlight for us how to be better because so often good characters are just good because they're written as good. There's not something that like, Oh, he was raised and you know, yeah. Like Superman was raised on the farm and you know, good old America. It's like, but someone who's bad, you can be like, I I've seen your struggle and, and how does, how does that relate to, sure. to, to that? So, yeah, <laughs> I think most people just assume Voldemort was just the Dark Lord, birthed bad with no <laughs> nose. Like that's just how he came out. But now that you know, there's that backstory, right? A good origin story, right? Everyone's got a good origin. Do you have an origin story? Me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I was certainly uh, for me. I uh, I have played music a very long time. Uh, I started when I was probably about twelve or thirteen years old. And when I got out of uh, high school, I didn't go to college. I just moved to Boston, continued playing in bands as many as six at a time. And I really was fortunate and would tour the world. You know, what, I mean, what do you play? Six? Mostly uh, guitar, but I've played bass, drums, vocals, whatever someone needed. I would, you know, I got known for um, being able, I worked very low, crappy job, low paying jobs. And so someone might contact me on a Monday and say, Hey, we're going to Europe for three weeks. Do you want to fill in? And I would go to my job and be like, yeah, I'm leaving for three weeks and hopefully you have my job. So uh, I became kind of known in that circle of as someone that could, uh, on a go, whim. Yeah. Because other people, members were starting to have families, uh, going to school or just had jobs they couldn't leave. So, uh, luckily I just did that. And so I've been able to tour quite a bit of the world. I've been everywhere from Australia, New Zealand to Easter Island to, uh, Iceland, so all over Europe, Japan several times, and uh, United States, everywhere except for Alaska. I've been to every state. Wow. So so how did you get 
to the Ouija board. What well, what was there a Oh, how did I become interested in the Ouija board? So, so a musician who's touring the world mm-hmm. uh, turns into an avid collector of the the talking board. Well, I always collected things, you know, really when I started going to flea markets as a kid. And certainly by the time I got my license, I was driving to flea markets on the weekend and, and things like that. So always antique stores. And I collected lots of things, Halloween, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Colonel Sanders things. But I was very close with my grandmother um, and she had used the Ouija board when she was, uh, when I was a little kid and I was never allowed to be in the room when she used it. So I would spy on her I'd spy <laughs> like through the window or down the stairs and she would move the planchette so fast. She would fly on the thing and she would yell out letters and numbers quicker than anyone could write down what she was saying. Uh, but when she passed away, uh, I inherited the board. What's funny is it, it actually took three years to convince my family to give me the board they thought I would open a portal and they didn't want me to have it. (laughs) And so I eventually got that, you know, she passed away in the mid nineties, early two thousands is when I got it. And then probably a couple years after that is when I went online to want to learn more about it. And I was just fascinated. I thought that the Ouija board just looked like that Parker brothers board and really everything that I saw, everything I learned, I just wanted to keep learning. And so um, as a collector, I think most collectors have a dream that someday They'll be able to put their items out for other people to enjoy and look at. And uh, so I had tried in Salem for probably seven years doing it. And it wasn't until after the Satanic Temple exhibit that I realized that people were interested in it. And then it, I kind of changed what I was thinking. I thought I needed to be on a, uh, right on the, the main drag and I'd have to leave my job of 20 years. Because even though I had low-paying jobs... I've actually had the same job for the last 22 years mm-hmm. who've been very kind to me to allow me to leave at times and come back to them, you know? Uh, but I was nervous about changing my career or changing my job. But when I went to the mystic museum, which is a museum out in California, uh, you could see this exhibit they had, and then you could pay a little bit of money to go to a back room and see their private collection. And, uh, oh. I, I went to that private collection and I saw about five or six Ouija boards. I had sold them. And I was like, wait a minute, I just paid money to see boards that I sold them. And that's when I was like, <laughs> that moment just clicked. If I was oh like, if gosh. I could have space in the back of a shop and I don't have to be on the storefront, it could be a self-guided tour. So of course, this is technically a self-guided tour museum. I just love being here as much as I possibly can. And so I am here as much as I possibly can, uh, talking to people all day long about the Ouija board. So talk about fulfilling a dream. You take your passion and turn it into this opportunity to share it with others every single day. So is this a full-time? I mean, it's full. What's funny is I I do work part-time for that job that I've Uh had for a long time. Um, But this is more than full-time because I'm here seven days a week. I work my day job until two. I get here at three, work till eight, all day Saturday and Sunday. And then like in October, I, I usually take days off for vacation from my other job to be here even more sleep on the floor. Yep, exactly. Yeah. But I, I, I don't care, you know, no, that's, that's beautiful. I, I don't, I, I really truly love this. This is the whole time I was a musician. I am still a musician, but the whole time I was touring, I really kept looking for what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And uh, even though I was playing music and happy, I knew there was never any kind of, you know, career or money involved. It was just a passion. That's all it was. Um, but I went looking for a very long time and it wasn't until I was telling this story fairly recently um, 
that I realized, well, wait, I finally have it. I went looking for so long to find what I wanted to do that I didn't stop to realize I've had it for three years now. With the museum. You're in it. Yep. You're, you're literally, we're, we're in it. We're in yeah. it. That's, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> so that, Sarah's soaking all that in. I was very excited for this interview. Yeah. I had seen, um, I had seen your sign go up several years ago and to be frank, I don't know if I'll cut this out or not. Um, but my background is in history I have a master's in history and research writing exhibit work. That was my thing. So when you put the word museum on something, I kind of look at it with a bit of an eye, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, what you, type you, of museum is this? And in Salem, it's there's a fine line between museum and attraction. Sure. So with all due respect, oh. I am so sorry. I just, <laughs> walking by, I had assumed that this was just yet another attraction. And I had said something to Jeff, uh, I think during quarantine, and he explained, oh no, you have to meet John. That's like, <laughs> he's like a Ouija guy. Like he, this is, this is his thing. And he I'm will, like, there's he like historical boards, everything about this with you. I was like, okay, oh my gosh, we need to get him on the podcast. <laughs> and I remember telling you like some of the stuff that was in here and like the, the historical pieces, the, the interesting pieces. And then like the bits of, of Salem history as well. Like, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to point to that and say, that's a plate printing plate from Parker brothers from Parker. Parker. (laughs) That that was saved from the trash that was saved. Uh, when Parker brothers closed up their factory, they were opening a new factory out in Longmeadow, mass. They told all their employees, don't worry, you'll have a job at the new location. And most employees were fired. And, uh, merch and myself were very obsessed with the Ouija board we found a Facebook page for former employees of Parker Brothers. And of course, we wrote to every single one of them, hey, any Ouija stories? One guy wrote back to us and said, oh, I worked at the factory for years and uh, they told me to throw all these things away, uh, but I didn't do that. I saved it. I put it in my attic. And so he had saved the molds that made all the Monopoly pieces. He had saved Tiny Tim, you know, tiptoe through the tulips. He had a board game. (laughs) He had the color proofs. He had a whole attic full of stuff. And so uh, he had what was left of the Parker Brothers factory in his attic. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Watching you freak out, Sarah. This is this. That was yeah, that he had, was he had oh, saved it all from the trash at a time so cool. well before American Pickers, before Storage Wars. He just had to send them all attachment and and luckily thought this is worth saving. And so he did. Uh, we helped. We put him in touch with the with a I'll vague. We put him in touch with a museum who was very interested in his collection and he got offered a lot of money for that. And so he was uh, extremely thankful to us and he donated the the printing plate. And what's Aww. fascinating about that plate is a lot of the history in the room, you tell the story long enough and it becomes the truth. Well, Parker Brothers made a claim in 67. They outsold Monopoly, a million boards. How do you prove that claim? Well, our friend from the trash saved the log books. And when an employee came in, <laughs> he went to the machine, put the date, what game he was running, how many impressions he was printing. In 1967, you can add up every time Ouija is in that log book, and you can see that it outproduced Monopoly, which then you can assume it outsold Monopoly. So we have the proof. That is so I have one of the cool. one of the uh, log pages in the other room. Because also the Ouija board was made on 6 6 
uh, June 6th of 66, which I love because <laughs> oh that, is the found, that is the day that uh, the Church of Satan, of course, was founded. And I love that they were making the Ouija board on that day. On the same. That's yeah. uh, history. Yeah. Right? <laughs> history. History is so cool. So it's wow. a genuine museum to get back to, to your initial. Right. This is a freaking genuine museum. And I appreciate I appreciate the context that you've worked in, the ads that we're surrounded by, talking about the individuals who actually created the board, patented the board, brought it to life, the Parker brothers. I mean, it's just, it is such an exciting, it's more than just a bunch of boards. It's all the stories attached to them and this greater narrative, which we talk about. I'm, I am tremendously fascinated by how people consume history. Mm -hmm. So the fact that our perception of boards has changed so much over the last 150 years is fascinating. And now we're sitting in a museum of them geeking out. And now people come every day to geek out as well. It's just, (laughs) it's really, it's really cool. Yeah. For me, I mean, I know you said you saw some reviews where people are very happy with their experience coming in here. And anybody that comes into a museum expecting like I would have expected that the Ouija board looked one way and then to pay money to go see what you think you're going to learn history on one board and then all of a sudden be blown away. Uh, you know, I'm most happy when I see those people that weren't very interested in coming in, but were like killing time or, you know, and they spend the most time here and that they you know, will leave telling me this was their favorite place in Salem. They came here, they expected nothing, you know, uh, just killing time before one of the ghost tours or something like that. And really they, it was their favorite place in Salem. You exceeded expectations and they probably came in not even knowing what to expect and you give them this gift of history and, and, and then they're let legend. down. <laughs> yeah, and, and, they come on a tour and, with us. And <laughs> everywhere else in the city, they're like, wow, I, was, I went to the Ouija Museum. That was great. This is, I don't know. <laughs> oh, this is just, it's well, been... I, I think I'm lucky because because I'm not on the main street and I'm like the speakeasy kind of location. I allow photography, which no, not many, if any places really allow any museums allow photography. There's some retail stores in town that don't allow photography. I encourage it. And of course in October, it's a little different when people are waiting to come in the museum, I have to limit it. But uh, when I travel, Mandy and I, we look through Instagram, we see places and I, I don't look at a picture that you might post and say, you've been there and me be like, Oh, well, I like that picture. I don't need to go there now. Right. I might want to go there more. I'm I'm inspired. Exactly. Yeah. That's how we look at it. So uh, we travel based on, photos that we see. So that's a cool thing. Let me go see that cool thing. Exactly. So I I encourage people to take photographs. I'm thankful for that. Um, So that sets it apart. And then to go to any museum where you can go and talk to somebody that knows a lot about (laughs) something (laughs) more than you uh, and really talk as long as you want and ask as many questions as you want uh, and hear some pretty amazing stories. Um, that's not common, you know? I think you and I were chatting before this. Oftentimes when you go into a museum, you'll bring in a curator. They may be familiar with some of the pieces or the the idea overall of that exhibit, but you have had personal experience with each and every single piece of this collection. Yep. And, and an ongoing experience with it. I'm sure you you incorporate more stories 
as the days, the months go on, because, you know, you just come across new people. Um, that's just very, it's, it's very cool. Yeah. Thank you. No, I, like I said, I do rotate things through because it's all about the stories. You know, it's not just me to put my collection out there and have people come and, you know, uh, drool over it. It's not like that at all. It's really, I like to tell as many different stories because some people might want to hear more bad. So you'd be surprised people, you know, they're afraid of the Ouija board, but they want to hear about the murders and the suicides associated <laughs> with the board. And you can, you know, I can tell them those, I can tell them whatever I know. Uh, I'm happy to tell anybody else. Uh, so this is your dream, right? And you somehow managed to get here. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, but if anyone listening wants to follow their dream or their life, do you have any advice to give to anyone in the world? I, my only advice would be don't put a limit or an age limit on your on what you're looking for. I did for a very long time. Uh, I, I always admired Colonel Sanders, who was somebody that I collected a lot of his items. And I always was inspired by him because he did not find success until he was in his 60s. So for me, it had always left me as being like, Oh, I have till my sixties to at least find my thing. You know, he failed at a lot of things before he found success. And so again, it wasn't until years of having this where I all of a sudden stopped and realized I found what I was looking for. So, you know, I don't think a lot of people, I think worry what they're going to do with the rest of their life or what they want to, what they're passionate about. But I don't think you need to worry about that so much. You'll find it, you know, find it. Yeah. Don't put the pressure on yourself for it. I love that. Well, that's phenomenal. So we've mentioned stories pretty much throughout this entire sit down. Can you tell us, do you have a favorite story attached to one of these boards? We talked about the teacup. We talked about quite a few different throughout this uh, chat, but do you have a favorite? Is there anything that sticks out? For me, it's, it's not a board. Uh, my favorite would be um, Helen Peters. You know, she's the woman we mentioned that uh, not only asked the board what it wanted to be called and it's spelled back Ouija, She's the sister-in-law of the person that patented the board, and she went to the patent office with him, and clerk after clerk, no one wanted to sign off on the patent, until finally the chief patent clerk said, I don't know you, you don't know me, if you can use this board and tell me my name, I'll give you the patent. Helen used the board, told the guy's name, that's how we get the patent for the Ouija board. Shortly after that, she's written out a history. We uncovered her story nine years ago, and we found out that her and her husband had died so poor, they were buried in a friend's family plot out in Denver, Colorado. And we knew where she was buried. It's just that their names weren't added to a stone. So four years ago, we actually raised money, uh, the Talking Board Historical Society, which is a, a nonprofit that I'm a part of that, uh, sorry, I didn't mention earlier, but that's okay. a registered nonprofit who research, preserve, celebrate this history. The Elijah Bond headstone put in that we did that early on, but Helen, we actually raised money and put a headstone in for her. And we uncovered her story. You know, Helen was written out of, history for over a hundred years and through our research where a lot of places are not digitized, you're still turning the pages of magazines. We had stumbled upon a series of letters that were written into the Baltimore sun in 1919. Someone had asked the, the editor where the Ouija come from. Luckily all the original people involved with the company lived in Baltimore and they all wrote in with their version. Whoa. But those people, but those people wrote her out. They wrote her out, but a lot of those people they didn't no. they didn't remember the story correctly. They tried to make themselves look more important than they no. were. But a story did develop that people were present at a seance where people had where a woman had asked the board what it wanted to be called. Guess what? None of them named her by name. 
So back then, it was a rooming house where this happened. We had to go through census records to all the people that lived in this rooming house. We had to go through the ancestry of all the people there, only to come across Helen Peters. Her sister married the guy that patented the board. Bingo. That took six years to uncover. So there's a big difference between this museum and a lot of other museums is uh, because being part of the Talking Board Historical Society, this history, it's fairly new. Not new. It's something people haven't talked about in a hundred years. I'm not telling you something that no one knew. I'm just telling you something that we haven't talked about or thought about in a long time. But Helen is probably one of my favorite stories here because uh, I was with Merch when he was uncovering that story. And I really, I helped to raise the money for the headstone uh, for her and get that acknowledgement. You know, the cemetery there embraced her history. They added her to the prominent women of Denver tours. They added her to the October ghost tours. So her story is slowly getting out there. And there's a show on the travel channel called mysteries at the museum. And they actually told her story. So, you know, that's to me of all the things, it's one of my favorite because I was part of a group that really helped to uncover this story of someone lost to history. And people wonder why history matters, and this is why, because it is still being uncovered. Mm -hmm. We are always looking at things with different lenses, different perceptions, different interpretations. More knowledge, less knowledge, different knowledge. Is is that her up on the wall? It is. Okay. So I have a picture, a portrait of her, and what's even cooler, I have her her christening dress from 1851. Oh, that's next to her. Her name's written on it. Wow. And underneath her portrait is a hand-drawn sketch from her husband. Not a photocopy, a real sketch from 1891 that her husband drew of her. And for him, when he looked at her, her, uh, he would see her spirit guides around her. So on the sketch of her are these spirit guides underneath drawn. (laughs) Sarah's losing her mind. Cool. How did you, how on earth did you get a hold of those pieces? Well, luckily, uh, her grandson is alive. He's a Mormon and Merch, openly gay, married, uh, had to go meet with this guy who uh, luckily uh, didn't judge and just based it on, even though he was very much against the Ouija board, he couldn't uh, turn his back that his uh, relative was responsible for what she had done. That's her life, not his. So luckily he was very um, uh, generous and and gave us some of those things. Yep. More and more stories. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. So uh, we'll fast forward, rewind to, so I I guess that about wraps it up. So if you want to hear any more stories uh, (laughs) when you come to Salem, visit uh, John here in the Salem Witchboard Museum. And that's through Remember Salem. So, which is just on Essex Street, across from the Gardner Pingree House. Um, real quick, do you have any anything else to plug? Any anything you do? Anything you want to shout out for? No, I mean, I, I'd say if people want to learn more about the Ouija board, uh, please check out the Talking Board Historical Society. It's tbhs.org. and um, you know that's it. I mean, the museum. Hopefully, you're able to come visit Salem, which is an amazing city in its own with tons of things to do here. Uh, if you do come to Salem, stop in and see me. Uh, you'll hear all different stories other than the ones you just heard here today <laughs> and, and more. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so, thank you. Thank you so much, John, for taking the time to sit down with us tonight. This has been such an incredible experience. And um, I think, dare I say, the coolest on site interview we so, have ever so far, done. So far. So <laughs> far. 
I, I, I'm not sure there's much in the city that would beat this, thinking about it. This is probably one of the, one of the coolest places. You're oh, literally awesome. right next to the sex board. I so. am. I am. I can say, I, I feel it. It's, it's radiating. <laughs> That's where you feel the pressure. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so if you enjoyed today's episode, do check us out on social media. We will be sharing pictures and videos of the Salem Witchboard Museum and our experience today. We are at Salem the Podcast. Thank you so much for joining of us, course. John. Thank you. We appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. See you later. Thank you.